Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 3, Episode 9. I'm Adam Deal, and this is Whitney Deal. Good morning. It's morning here. And um, today we're talking about The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, we're talking about the the standout moments in the novel. So the, there are several of them, and <laughs> we're actually not even going to talk about all of them because I didn't get fully prepared on one of them. Uh, or two of them, or three of them. Um, but what we're going to talk about today are the Grand Inquisitor, the uh, Grushinka Onion, and Cana of Galilee, uh, back-to-back chapters, and Ivan's Dream with the Devil. And so um, we, we uh, did a little teaser, you know, uh, next time on the Brothers Karamazov. Um, we would talk about how uh, Jesus and the devil are characters in the novel. And so, um, Whitney, let's just start with that. Like, reading this the first time, what was your just kind of, like, memory of reading Grand Inquisitor, reading, um, reading Ivan's Dream? Like, Dostoevsky has the... Has the um, the courage, if you want to use a word, uh, to bring in eternal beings into this this novel. Yeah, and you're right to call it courage. I always think about that when I read um, Paradise Lost, for example, or you know, just any work where you've decided that you're going to put more words in the mouth of God, or just d- depict extra scriptural things happening to people, beings who are in scripture. Yeah, it's, it's a risky move. I, I would not undertake it myself, but I understand at the same time why Dostoevsky decided to. He, he did not put words in the mouth of Christ. He just put right. an action in the mouth of Christ, or, or several actions in the mouth of Christ. It is in the mouth of Christ because he, yeah, he kisses the Grand Inquisitor. <laughs> I was about to... Say I was misspeaking, but not totally. Um, but reading it through the first time, I think that I was a little befuddled by some parts of it. Um, it It is just hard to make out why the devil is saying some of the things he's saying. I mean, Ivan is confused by the devil, too, because sometimes it seems like the devil who's talking to him is trying to lead him to faith. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, why are why are you trying to convince me you're real? Wouldn't it be better if I thought that you were a hallucination and that I didn't believe in God? Isn't the goal that I don't believe in God? Right, so Ivan himself is confused. I felt confused. Um, It really has taken me reading the book a few times and also understanding more about the context of the world in which Dostoevsky was writing for me to understand more about what the devil is doing and why he's doing it. Um, Because... I realized that the devil kind of has two, it seems to me, two main purposes in the things he's saying to Ivan. One of the purposes is to just create increasing doubt in Ivan. So he actually doesn't want Ivan to have unresolved doubts. That's not going to serve his purposes. He wants Ivan to keep on doubting. Like, he doesn't want Ivan to be like, oh, the devil is real. Now I believe in the supernatural realm. I'll join the devil's side and be a Satanist. That's not his goal with Ivan. His goal with Ivan is to increase Ivan's confusion until Ivan commits suicide, I believe. Um, 
the same way that Smirjikov does. Um, because the devil wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy God's creation. And I would, I would think that it might seem to the devil like a, the best triumph of all to get you to destroy yourself and kind of fling your life back in God's face. Like, I don't want it or something. I, so anyway, there seems to be some dynamic like that going on. I think the other purpose of the devil saying what he's saying in this book is that he is parroting the sorts of things that intellectual young people like Ivan were saying when this book was being written. So the devil is going to speak differently in different contexts because in different cultural situations, you can reach people more effectively in different ways. These things are what the devil was whispering into the ears of young intellectuals in Russia at the time when this book was being written. And because Dostoevsky writes so much from a place that's embedded in his culture, you kind of have to learn about his culture before you fully understand the the point of the devil's approach to Ivan. And, you know, I'm glad that we're, like, starting with that because... <laughs> You know, why would we want to end with the devil? But um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think what we'll do is we'll talk about this first, then we'll talk about Grand Inquisitor, then we'll finish with the, the Onion and Canaan Galilee. So um, the, the first thing that we see with, with the devil is his appearance. And there's a, a long description of how he looks, how he presents himself, um, it says he was wearing a sort of brown jacket, evidently from the best of tailors, but already shabby, made approximately three years ago and already completely out of fashion, so as, not, so as no well-to-do man of society had been seen in for, last, for the last two years. His linen, his long scarf-like necktie, all was just what every stylish gentleman would wear, but on closer inspection, the linen was a bit dirty and the wide scarf was threadbare. The visitor's checkered trousers fitted perfectly, but again... They were too tight and somehow too narrow of a style no one wore any longer, as was the soft, downy white hat the visitor had brought with him, though it was entirely the wrong season. In short, he gave the appearance of decency uh, on rather slender means. And... <coughs> ah! Cough. Um, you know, I, my first thought when I read that was the old gentleman that... that Satan is described as the old gentleman. Of course, that makes me think about the old gentleman that they refer to the bull as in Greenleaf in uh, Flannery O'Connor's story. So, um, shout out to season two. But um, just, the, like, everything you're saying about what Satan is, uh, uh, is, is espousing and saying uh, aligns with the young people of the time but Ivan immediately notices how out of fashion Satan looks. And it looks like he's trying to be on trend, but he is like a few years behind, or he hasn't given up the old trend yet. And I was just thinking about how important clothing is in this in this novel. And like we talked about Lise on episode seven, how she just like laughs hysterically because Alyosha comes to visit them in his uh, his novice cassock, and she just is like, you know, can't take him seriously because he's dressed. It, it, he she th she sees it as a costume, and he you know he's just wearing his work clothes. But um, but that Satan's outfit 
is given so much time here is is really interesting because I think one of the one of the chief fears of young people is is being seen as looking like they don't know what cool is like like they're trying to look cool, milady, uh, fedora. Um, but they're just, just not tips an imaginary fedora <laughs> to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not on trend. They're behind. Is that the right word? Behind the trend, like yeah. I was struck when I was reading this by how quickly the trends would move. Then I've noticed this in other novels too, um, from the 19th century. That it seems like every year, this was like the first time maybe in history when. Every year there would be a new trend. Like, so every fall, like, there's a new trend in fall ladies' wear and men's wear, and you have to go buy some new material and pay your tailor for a new coat or whatever because they would slightly move the lapels or slight. And it used to feel like that even when we were growing up. I think that you would be like, oh, this year no one's wearing mini skirts. It's all about the, yes. the maxi skirt. But right now in 2022, to me, it feels like a free for all. Like, wear whatever you want. And if it's eccentric enough, people will be like, you're doing that on purpose. You made a choice. You're cool. You know, the only thing I guess that would not be considered kind of like cool and intentional would be something that looks really, really normy, Like as if you couldn't possibly like very straightforward in Augusta, it would be a very straightforward, like master's polo, with some khaki, tucked into some khaki shorts. You know, like, if you're dressed like that, then no one thinks you're, like, trying to be cool, but... Right, that's that's just, like, what we would call the conventional look yeah. of, of the place that we live. But otherwise, you can be wearing any number of things, and people would be like, you seem cool, you seem like you're, you know, trendy. <clears throat> anyway, all that to say, in this world, you can look at a person's pants. In, in Dostoevsky's world, you can look at a person's pants and say, those are so last season. Like, poor guy, he's trying, but no one's wearing that anymore. <laughs> and that's what the devil looks like. And I think Ivan, as a stand-in for, like, the young Russians, he he is, shall we say, cringing yeah. at, at the look of Satan. He's just like, oh, he's so uncool. The notion of lady. the devil <laughs> is passe for people of that generation. <clears throat> like, yes, yes. You know... It's cute, almost like the the concept that there could be something like the devil, and then the devil tells him, oh, "I can see you're disappointed I didn't show up with like a cloud of you know sulfurous smoke around me and or something, something yeah. like woo, you know, dramatic." <coughs> um, and Ivan keeps telling him, "You're just an idiot." Ugh. Like he treats him very much like he treats Smirnikov, like you stupid idiot. Why am I wasting my time talking to you? I hate you, and. But then he has this horrible realization. Oh, and also, like, these are all the same thoughts I've had myself and was really proud of. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, I'm an idiot. So it's like this self-loathing. And he, then being like, well, if you're real, then apparently I've been your lackey this whole time, even though I think you're a, an idiot and you're contemptible. Apparently, apparently I've been to the devil what Smirnikov was to me, just this lame follower. Oof. He was doing whatever you said to do, thinking whatever you said to think. So that's bad. But if you're not real, that means I'm going crazy. So this is a no-win situation yes. for me. 
And, you know, I just keep coming back to this idea of, like, one of the worst things to a young person that doesn't, that, that's not Christian, is seeming uncool. And um, maybe it's not uncool to the to the masses, but it's, like, uncool to the people you think are cool. Yeah. And um, I think that that's what is, like, unnerving Ivan so much. It's like, he, he kind of... He kind of thinks the devil is cool because he's he's seeing himself as a devil. He's seeing himself as a devil's advocate. And so for the devil to not seem awesome, mm-hmm. I think, it, you oh, know. I'm not awesome either. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and so um, Dostoevsky's genius uh, of making Satan into this kind of just try hard what i what i have used in the past soulless try hard uh, and certainly that that fits the devil if no one else but um this idea of he is is trying so hard to look cool but everyone that knows what cool is looks at him and they're like you know uh, let me find a time machine to go back to 1994, diesel jeans. <laughs> uh-huh. um, that's an SNL skit with uh, Chris Kattan and Horatio Sands and um, Jimmy Fallon, I think, and Sean Hayes. Anyways, I, I don't remember everyone in the, in the skit. but um, Well, how dare you bring it up if you don't remember see, everyone in yeah. the skit? <laughs> and that, and that's, that's, like, that's a great example of, like... I, is Chris Kattan in that, or is it Jimmy Fallon and Sean Hayes? I, I think it's Jimmy Fallon and Sean Hayes. But that's a great example of like, oh, man, I may have messed up the details a little bit. And that's exactly what Satan has done. And it's like those are the things that are getting to Ivan and because he's not in his right mind to be able to say, like, you're the devil, get away from me. And I think that you're right to say that Ivan fancied himself the devil he he didn't think that explicitly, but what I mean is he had the same attitude as Satan in saying, hey, I'm the authority here. I'm the big man here. Like, there is no authority over me. There is no God. So I decide what's right. I decide what's wrong. I can transgress any boundary I want because I'm smart enough to know there isn't a boundary at all. Yes. And... You know, I, I look at, like, the description. I mean, they even... T- it's, it's amazing to think about Dostoevsky being firm enough in his faith that he can write about the devil and and not feel like he's sinning. I mean, I feel like that's... <laughs> One of the things about having a weak conscience versus a strong conscience is a weak conscience person might feel like, I better not even think about the devil because that makes me feel like I'm getting... Uh, I'm breaking my relationship with God. Whereas in this situation, I feel like Dostoevsky like makes the devil really, really disarming. Yeah, I'd actually like to read a um, little quote from the biography yeah. that is about this section. But you're right, disarming, I think, is a good word for it. That makes a lot of sense because I, I just was talking about this with my students because we're... Um, studying Dracula in one of my classes right now. And the characters in Dracula are just living their modern 1890s lives and just engaging with 
career, their careers and modern technology and all of this. And then suddenly they're inter- introduced to the fact that there's a supernatural realm and that there is evil and good and that these things they thought of as just symbolic, like a crucifix or, you know, the communion wafer have this power to them instead of just being empty symbols. And all of a sudden they get devout and courageous and they, they're just like transformed by all this knowledge. And it's, it's, it's cool to see but I think similarly, if you had an encounter with a demon as a, a modern person, it would have the potential to make you get real serious real fast about right. turning to Christ. Because you'd be like, whoa, you'd wake up. You know what I mean? Whoa, okay. Like, um, I need to draw on power, a power source here, because there's a spiritual war. You might just realize it. And... I think that because the devil has such a, uh, in Ivan's encounter, has such a physical embodiment, he seems so much like a real normal person. Ivan can't 100% take him seriously. And so that actually increases his doubt. And like the devil's goal is for him to just be in a, a kind of a frenzy of doubt where he's driving himself crazy. And the way that the devil presents himself to Ivan in this situation increases the doubt rather than resolving the doubt. Because Ivan's like, well, he looks just like a lame person who would just have to sponge off of other people, and he's kind of, you'd make fun of him a little bit. And then I'm sick, so maybe he's an hallucination. Like, what? what is he? He's just stuck in doubt. But Joseph Frank says this, The portrait of the devil, as Victor Terras has remarked, contains more descriptive detail than that of any other character. Dostoevsky takes great pains to present him in entirely earthly terms as a Russian social type. Because Ivan keeps insisting that the devil is just a figment of his imagination, Dostoevsky ironically gives him a solid embodiment. He shows up as a rather down-at-heels member of the landed gentry, a gentleman no longer able to support himself because the income from his estate has vanished since the abolition of serfdom. But he still exhibits all the social graces of his former position, such as embroidering his conversation in French phrases. (laughs) Um, In the end of this paragraph, I thought was fascinating. It says, um, His manners are good, he can be presented in society, and he is agreeable, accommodating, and amusing. Such an image carries a symbolic meaning. Religion itself, from Dostoevsky's point of view, was now a hanger-on in Russian-educated society, accepted as a respectable relic of the past, but hardly exercising its old power and influence. As the devil remarks himself, It's an axiom generally accepted in society that I am a fallen angel. If If I ever was, it must have been so long ago that there's no harm in forgetting it. Um, that both the church and the concept of the the devil, all of it in Russia at that time is like a quaint, still still relevant, still acceptable, but like kind of a quaint hanger on in society. Not the powerful one, not the one you take seriously. Well, and I think that you're bringing up a great point that that Dostoevsky is embodying the devil in exactly the place that Russia is taking the church, which is a sponger, a hanger on. Like basically we allow you to exist so that we can make fun of you so that we can, um, 
believe that we're better than you so that we can have the power over you so that you will be servile and like, like, you know, um, just like, just always, always like looking up to us like, Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Oh, I'm so grateful for this, you know? And, um, and that's just, it's sad that, that that was the, the place of the church in Russia at that time. And, and of course I would say that America in 2022, the church is is slowly but surely getting that same place, and and you know like what we'll compromise our beliefs if you just allow us to exist. Thank you so much. And and like oh please you know, oh please sir may I have another like you know please please um, make fun of us and and like persecute us and you know I, Jesus promises persecution, but that doesn't mean we should run out and look for it every single second. It just means it will naturally come to us if we have genuine faith. And we see that in, in Aloysia in, in the novel. But um, Satan coming to Ivan in this, in this moment is, is very powerful because, you know, we're at this point in the novel where, you know, we're six, I'm in, you know, six, page 636, like <laughs> so deep into the novel. And yet, it almost brings this like lightheartedness to just after Ivan has found out that Smerdyakov has murdered his father. Um, this is the next thing that happens, and and I think that that's just one of the many genius moments in this novel is the, is the sequencing of it, how this comes about directly after Ivan realizes, oh my gosh, I basically killed my father and and it's like he he wanted his father to die he wanted Dimitri to be the one to kill him and so in, in a way it's like he was already like uh orchestrating that but but to, to find out that Smerdyakov framed Dimitri it's and that it, Smerdyakov was taking it as Fully Ivan's idea. Yes. In Smerdyakov's mind. <laughs> he's like, we did it, boss. We did it. And he's like, no. <laughs> and then the condescension he gets from Smerdyakov, because Smerdyakov is like, you can't seriously be telling me you didn't know what I was talking about. Like, I thought we <laughs> I thought we were clear. And and so just uh, the the arrangement of this novel is, is so powerful because Really, Ivan has has um, absorbed maybe one of the most insanity um, driving things that he could possibly have done in his life, which is that he he's responsible for his father's murder, and then the devil comes to him, and and I think that that's um, I think that that's something that's not unique to this novel. I think that sometimes the devil will approach someone, like you said, to basically drive them to suicide after they have realized their guilt in something. Mm -hmm. And so, and of course, Smerdyakov does commit suicide. So I I don't know if there was a a visit from the devil to Smerdyakov, but, um, you know, that's a, that's a different type of suicide than a, than a depression suicide. But um, I think that just that, 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 um, that overwhelming pressure to to like undo what you've done by just undoing yourself from the world 
is is a perfectly human reaction. I don't think it's it's unique to like oh just only the most evil of us would do that. Um, but but the thing about it is is like that's Satan's way of winning. Yeah, you saying that makes me think of one thing the devil says to him. So I'll just say it. The devil uses anecdotes pretty constantly, and Ivan thinks in anecdotes too. Like the Grand Inquisitor is an yes. anecdote. Like an il- it's an illustration. And so were all those stories about children suffering. I think Ivan's brain works that way. And so the devil, to me, the implication seems to be that maybe the devil has been speaking to him all the time in anecdotes, and he's just been thinking he's been coming up with it himself. Because, you know, there's that moment where um, the the devil tells him this anecdote about the guy walking a quadrillion miles yes. or whatever. And then I was like, no, I came up with that when I was 17. And, and the devil's like, or I did. And you, you know, <laughs> and he's like, oh, what? <laughs> but there's this anecdote about this guy who lost his nose and then went to go see a Jesuit priest. And then the priest says, <laughs> it's a blessing from the Lord because now no one can pull your nose. And then the guy, it says the unhappy young man shot himself that very night when he got home. I was by his side till the last moment. So there are so many implications in that. For one thing, just that Satan has a goal of wanting people to end their lives, you know, to destroy themselves. Um, But I think there's also another implication about when reason takes over love, even for like a, a priest or a person of faith, it, it's destructive. Like I, I would say Dostoevsky was quite committed to the, the, the idea that unreason, like irrationality is actually an important con- aspect of faith that you can't understand everything. You shouldn't try. So like love is the primary priority for a Christian. And so, if you go see a priest because you're grieving that your nose is gone and he tries to reason with you and tell you exactly what God is doing and like what the point of it all was, that's not loving or comforting. It's infuriating and it might actually turn you against God because frankly, there's a mystery there, right? Like if you're, you don't have a nose anymore, I don't know why God allowed you not to have a nose anymore. Like I don't know what God is doing. And for me to, act like I have everything figured out and explain it to you and not sympathize with you is cold. Yeah. And it leads that man to despair. So the, 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 the like man of God in the situation failed miserably at showing right. love. And, you know, Jesuits are like a special bugbear, as, as people say in old novels like this, for Dostoevsky. Like he really had a hatred for mm. Jesuits. He had just... He had heard a lot of stories, like he once read a quotation from a, a, a Jesuit priest that said something like, well, you know, I mean, maybe God doesn't exist, but it's good for the people to believe that. So it's for the good of humanity either way. So, we'll, you know, go ahead and just keep the faith, like things like that. He got, mm-hmm. and he got very infuriated by that. And he also, of course, you can see from the Grand Inquisitor. That quotation episode, also really infuriated me. Sure. Um you can see from the Grand Inquisitor, too, that the Catholic Church for Dostoevsky was um, deeply corrupt. Like, he felt like it had basically abandoned the faith. That's why he thought that the Orthodox Church had to be the kind of reviver of faith for the whole world. Because he thought Protestants 
and Jesuits over-relied on reason and that the Catholic Church infantilized people and didn't give them their dignity as human beings and just wanted to do all their thinking for them. And so anyway, all this to say, reason without love leads to despair. It's interesting that you say that. Um, I was thinking about this concept of creativity and um, memory just because I am writing projects uh, that involve my memories. And what I'm realizing is I don't think that I store my memories and my reason. I don't think I store them in a, like, um, factual place in my brain. I store them in my emotions. And I don't know if that's just common to all people or not, but but I've realized in, in writing, like, I, I just... Occasionally, I might, like, not know exactly the right word I want to use, and I'll just kind of, like, write something and just put a little, like, bracket around it, like, come back to that, rethink that. But to me, writing is is easy. Like, <laughs> it's really not difficult because I think, you know, I, I mentioned this with Flannery O'Connor in the second season. I think she was just channeling what the Holy Spirit was giving her. and And I think that if you allow God to give you some of his creativity, he can dignify your life, you know, or your ideas if it's if you're not writing about your life. And um, and I think that that's what's happening when I'm writing. It's like I, I'm just basically the, the amanuensis for the Holy Spirit. And, you know, that's a very spiritual metaphysical like like to your point like unreason like it's something you can't understand in your reason it's it's basically like i just trust that this the the force that's driving me to write is not just my own will or my own brain and so dostoevsky i feel like has this same he's doing this same thing with with this scene in particular, like he he's channeling, like this is how the devil would approach me, you know, because I I you know he he, he some part of him is Ivan, and so he he's, um, I think he, he it's almost like he is being the devil's advocate in the sense of like he's trying to say what would have gotten under my skin the most, what would have like made me feel the most like uh, superiority to the devil and and like you know I I think he's actually really sympathetic with Ivan in this in this scene because he's he's showing like this this visit from the devil is is raising emotion out of Ivan that he really never shows in the rest of the novel at least you know before this yeah and it actually it may be the fact, I think, that the devil is miscalculated here because it seems to me in this novel that emotion, strong emotion, is more likely to lead you to God than just a kind of cold, logical approach to everything. Um, it's just easy to feel smug and self-justified if your emotions aren't running high and you're, you're, you feel very logical and self-justified. 
Um, when your emotions are running high, emotions are prone to change as well. And so you might be feeling full of hate, but then you can get to like a breaking point with that. And like, I think Dimitri's a good example of this. His emotions run so high, but they change frequently. <laughs> like I was just um, listening to the part where he, um, Ivan and Katya are looking at the letter that he wrote to Katya where he said, I'm going to kill my father and steal his money. And his emotions are all over the place. Like he, he keeps adding things and going PS, PPS, PPPS to the end of it. And then he says, you're my enemy and my, what does he say? Like you're my enemy and my. He says, I'm your enemy and your slave. I'm your enemy and your slave. That's what it is. He's just emotionally all over the place, but he is capable of great love and passion, even for God, you know, and that's, that's an important open door for him for his salvation. You mentioned that and that, that letter. And, and one of my favorite things in that, that scene is that he has written the entire letter all over the paper. And then he starts writing over what he's written like sideways. So it's like, like, like graph paper. And, um, and so it, just imagining getting this letter that's, like, written in plaid. Like, it's it, 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 it such a funny... It sounds like the kind of thing I would do. Except I haven't gotten to that level of, like, emotional uncontrol. He's really drunk when he does it. Right, and you don't drink, right, so that right. helps. <laughs> but I'm sure if I were drunk, I, that, that sounds like what I would do. Um, but this just that... That actually connects to the Cana of Galilee um, scene. So, so we'll, we'll come back to that, you know, at the end. But um, I did also want to mention about Satan's anecdotes. He, he's talking about having all these illnesses, and he basically wants to die. Like, that's, that's his will. It's like either die or, um, or, like, be able to be readmitted to heaven. Did you think he was trying to mimic Jesus when he was talking about all of that? That kept occurring to me, like... He's like, I just want to have a body. I just want to be a person who can get sick and cold. Like, I like being in a body. But then also, Joseph Frank says that Ivan also has this desire to just be an old Russian lady who never thinks about anything and lights his little candles before the icons. And, like, the devil's like, wouldn't that be a relief to not be striving against God with, like, all my energy? Just, like relax and stop thinking and just be an old Russian late peasant lady. And Ivan has got some of that in him too. Like wouldn't it be a relief to just stop worrying about what's true and what's real and what's right. And I think that, you know, you bring up that, that question and it's like, well, you, you can stop worrying about those things if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, like an active love, which is what reaffirms the faith to you as Zosima says. And then, and and, you know, when you think about like Zosima says, above all, do not lie to yourself. And I'll tell you, one of the hardest things to do is to tell yourself the truth about yourself. Mm. Like tell yourself, I wanted my father to get murdered. It's really hard for Ivan to admit that to himself. And, and I think that Jesus gives us that ability. Like, I don't think it's possible to be fully truthful with yourself without Christ. But when we are allowed to be just frank and forthright about ourselves, we we can, like you said, like 
like blow up with with hatred and then it just dissipates and then 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 we can be in our right mind and say oh I was really hateful in that situation now it doesn't mean it's not going to hurt someone else and of course that's the challenge is like what what do you do when your hatred hurts someone else and and it's like well you got to just ask forgiveness and 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 show repentance and and just trust God to to do the rest but that's you know that's something I think that Ivan just can't he can't do he's like he he has just as much hatred for his father as as Dimitri does and it's almost like he sees Dimitri's hatred like burning hot and so he's like oh man you know I hope I hope Dimitri does kill him whereas he he thinks that his father deserves to be murdered, which you know is is coming from a place of hatred as well. Yeah, I think that this novel kind of colors the whole situation as if Ivan's um, cold, calculating. I washed my hands of this, but I think that if I just step back, Dimitri will do the dirty work for me. Like that whole attitude is uglier than Dimitri's. So what Dimitri does is says, like, I want to kill my father and get close to doing it. And then in the last moment, have an emotional swing of some sort that he attributes to his mother must have prayed for him once. And then and the God intervened and then he decides not to. Whereas Ivan refuses to act, but his motives are very deeply dark and ugly. Like I think of when Alyosha shows up at um, his house after he's been having this conversation with the devil. And he says to Alyosha, you despise me too, Alyosha. Now I'm going to hate you again. And I hate the monster too, meaning Dimitri. I hate the monster. I don't want to save the monster. Let him rot in Siberia. Um, He's begun singing a hymn. Oh, tomorrow I'll go stand before them and spit in their faces. So it's just like, I hate, I hate you. I hate everybody. Um, I think there's kind of a two things that I think of with this. One is he would feel better in a weird way if he could just settle there and be like, yeah, I hate everybody. Who cares? There's no God anyway. I can hate everybody if I want to hate everybody. I can want my father to die if I want my father to die. But he can't rest there. That's his torment. His nature is not that ugly. And his mind is not that settled. That's why when he knocks that peasant down and he's like, that guy's going to freeze to death whatever, and then he comes back after the conversation with Smirnikov and helps him for, like, an hour. He's like, he just, he can't let it rest there. Like, who cares? I don't care about anybody. I hate everybody. So he's torn. His, I think his gut impulse is partly, like, yeah, I hate everybody. Just, just a misanthrope. And then, but then another part of him is can't live that way. Can't, his, his conscience won't allow him. And thank goodness the person he spews his hatred on, like, you were just talking about spewing your hatred and how there are consequences for it, even though sometimes if you spew your hatred, it kind of gets some of that out of your system, and then you can repent. But there are consequences. But if you're if you're very very blessed, like Ivan, to have someone to spew your hatred hatred on, who's a, a strong believer in Christ, like Alyosha, he'll forgive you readily. Yeah. And so, like the next page, you have Alyosha tucking him into bed and being like, you know, he's he's sick. I feel pity for him, and he prays for him. And he says, I think I'm starting to understand my brother. Um, He has a proud determination and a deep conscience, and God is gaining mastery over his heart. Um, 
and he he thinks God will conquer, but he's concerned that maybe Ivan's Ivan will perish and hate revenging on himself and on everyone. His having mm. served the cause he does not believe in. So Ivan right now is so angry that he's like, Ugh, why am I acting like there's a God? I'm going to go confess, you know, this and that. Why am I acting like there's a God when there's no God? He's so angry. And Elliot's just like, this is a good sign. God is fighting a battle for his soul right now. But, but Ivan gets to make a significant choice, and he might make the wrong choice. Right. And, and, and I think that that's, you know, that's one of the challenges about this book is like, if God knows what choice he's going to make, does he really have a choice? And, of course, that's, you know, you're getting to this, like, predestination Calvinism uh, discussion, which, you know, I, I do think that the entire ministry of Jesus is saying that everyone has a choice and that even if you choose to say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? If you didn't let him be Lord of your heart, no matter what glory went to God in your actions, your soul is not united to him in eternity because he says, I never knew you. And, and, and that, that, you know, that is very uh, fear-inducing in a way. It's like, well, what, you know, how do I know my faith is secure? And it's like, well, the way you know your faith is secure is that you know your, your Savior. Like, you, if you know Christ, you will constantly be shaped more and more to be like him such that the world will not know you in your fallen state, but will know Christ through you. And, and that's, you know, that's what Alyosha is doing to Ivan is like just being Christ-like to him. And, and um, you know, it's interesting that like he's being so Christ-like. And, and, and the reality is Satan has just visited Ivan and now Christ is visiting him through Alyosha. And so Ivan, it really is this diamond that God and the devil are fighting over for his soul uh, that, that, that Satan talks about. And, and just that, like, why is someone so important to either one of them? There's so many millions and billions of people that, have, that, have, that are alive now or that have been alive before. But, but it just goes to show, like, that's how how special faith is to, to God is that he, you know, he will leave the 99 to rescue the one because the 99 are much more safe in the herd than the one is by itself. And, you know, think about just like how Satan like tempts Ivan. One of the things he's tempting with is, is like what I would call like a, um, an insouciance, like, this this whole anecdote that he says, he says, um, uh, then too, they had this way of sending you to specialists. And I've been to a lot of specialists with my fainting spells. Um, it says, we will give you our diagnosis, they say, then go to such and such a specialist and he will cure you. I tell you, the old-fashioned doctor who treated all diseases has completely disappeared. Now there are only specialists and they advertise all the time in the newspapers. If your nose hurts, they send you to Paris. There's a European specialist there. He treats noses. You go to Paris. He examines your nose. 
I can treat only your right nostril, he says. <laughs> I don't treat left nostrils. <laughs> it's not my specialty. But after me, go to Vienna. There's a separate specialist there who will finish treating your left nostril. He says, what is one to do? I resorted to folk remedies. One German doctor advised me to take a steam bath and rub myself with honey and salt. I did it, only for the chance of having an extra bath. I got myself all sticky and to no avail. In desperation, I wrote to Count Matei in Milan. He sent me a book and some drops, God help him. And imagine what what cured me was Hoff's extract of malt. (laughs) I accidentally bought some and drank drank a glass and a half and could even have danced. Everything went away. I was absolutely determined to thank him publicly in the newspapers. The feeling of gratitude was crying out in me. But imagine, that led me to another story. No, no, not one publisher would take it. <laughs> and it's like, it's so, it's so clever and silly. It's like, it's just, I, I just think about like, the, the delight that Dostoevsky must have had, like making the devil seem so delightful. Because that is what the devil is to people. He is that enticement of delight. He's that enticement. Like a charmer. Yeah. Yeah. He's clever. He's not wise. He's going, he's going to appeal to your pride and say, gosh, don't, don't you really want this? And you're going to be like, yes, I do. And then when you realize that the devil is behind, okay, that left nostril, right nostril, go to a specialist section that's so funny is the light version of this really dark thing that happens in the book, which is that fancy doctor that Katerina Ivanovna called for, goes to visit um, Ilyushka and gives basically gives the advice, well, if you want to save your son, you just need to take him to Italy. That's the solution. And then the the caption is like, um, have you seen where we live? Like, do you think we can go to Italy? And then he says... You know, look at my wife's condition. Look at my other daughter's condition. Do you think we can go to Italy? And the doctor's like, no, no, I'm not saying your wife and your daughter should go to Italy. He's like, your wife needs to go to Paris, obviously, because <laughs> there's a doctor there who could help, and your daughter needs to go to... And that's that's the dark version. I mean, even that is kind of funny on the surface, but then the aftermath's not funny at all because just how crushed the captain is that yes. nothing can help and that yes. his poverty is just limiting literally the ability to live of his son and like how angry Kolya is at that doctor. The Kolya basically is like, my dog's going to bite you to that yeah. doctor. And Ali is just like, Kolya, stop it. Shut up. <laughs> stop it. Do not stick your dog on that doctor. But it's so, when you realize the devil is also prompting the pride of that doctor and the 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 callousness of that doctor and the selfishness of that doctor. That doctor's doing the same thing as that Jesuit did in that story, which is to say, like, oh well, you know, you must uh, there must be something good about all the suffering you're going through. Like, I can't help you. Bye. Like the devil's behind all those attitudes, and then you're like, oh, the devil's not cute at all, and this plays out. When the things the devil wants people to do play out, it's horrible. Right. But he has a way of coming across like harmless, you know, invite him in. Yeah. He won't do anything. When I think about this idea of like, it almost feels like the devil is treating Ivan like he's his friend. 
And Ivan does not think he is the devil's friend. He's like, you're not my friend. You're my, you know, get out of here, you idiot, you know. Um, but just that level of familiarity, I think that's, that's where the Christian faith comes in with, with respect to the devil is like how to keep the angry lion that's ready to devour anything he sees from coming to you is like you have to put on the full armor of Christ. And even doing that, it doesn't mean you won't get wounded by the devil. I mean, that's that's the, 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 the sobering truth about, about faith is that it isn't a linear journey in race where you're just like sprinting for 100 meters and you're done. It's, it's winding and it's the course, you know, you're like, wait, which direction am I supposed to go? And, and just, you know... There are all sorts of challenges, and and I think that Ivan is realizing in this in this dream, like just how serious this how how life or death serious faith is, uh, in a way that he had just decided in a like purely uh, academic way, like 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 this doesn't need to matter to me, so I'm going to tell myself that it doesn't. And so anything that it uh, does to my emotions, I'm just going to like tell my emotions, you're being stupid. Don't listen to that. And the reality is sometimes your emotions are trying to tell your brain. Like that's why it says, love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Like there are more things to our identity than just our mind and our bodies. Mm -hmm. And, like that idea of like your heart or like the seed of your emotions. If you want to say it's in your brain, that's fine. But like that, that you have an element of your identity that is not your rational frontal lobe mind that can actually tell your frontal lobe, like this isn't wise. This isn't good. Don't do that. You know, instinctively like, you know, just swerve into that next lane, which I had to do yesterday because someone was, making a left turn directly into me. Like, they were going to just completely plow into me, and I just had to swerve. I didn't even look behind me to see if anyone was behind me. I, that was just like, it was either like, get into an accident or maybe not get into an accident. And thankfully, we didn't get into an accident. Josephine was in the car. But it was very terrifying because in that moment, I couldn't think. It was just instinct. It was just an emotional response. And, and, you know, I, I couldn't, I told Whitney, I couldn't even honk at them because I was just so shaken in that moment. Yeah. I've got a lot of thoughts after what you're saying. Cause one thing that I thought of was the way that Ivan is coming up with all these stories and anecdotes and imaginary scenarios He's using his imagination. You know, he's not the kind of person who approaches problems simply through um, log- cold logical reasoning. He uses stories. Yeah, that's which is a great interesting. point. But he comes up with that story about the guy who believes his whole life that there's not an eternal life, and then he dies, and he's like, oh, man, there is an eternal life. Dang it. And then he gets the opportunity to walk a I think it's a quadrillion miles. Yes, yes. And then if he does that, he kilometers. Can, yeah. He can, it's <laughs> the Satan Satan yeah, says yeah, we're yeah. using kilometers now. Right. Right. <laughs> then he can be, you know, that's his repentance. He can be forgiven. And so he does it. And at the end, he's like, it was worth it. Um, 
And Ivan made that story up as a 17-year-old as a scoffer. And I actually think that Ivan is, he'll, he'll make stories up that seem on the surface like maybe they're kind of devout, but then he's like laughing at them. Like, this sounds so stupid. Like he's laughing at them on the, out, of the, out of the other side of his mouth. And that's what his article was yes, as well, where yes. he seemed like on the surface he was saying, yeah, the church should definitely be the government. And But he's like scoffing at that and laughing at it out of the other side of his mouth. And it reminds me of his father. And one of the most hurtful things yes. that the devil says to him is like, you're like your father. You're just like your father. Your soul is like your father. And he's like, I hate my father. Like, how can I be like him? And then he says to Alyosha, like, I am like him. You know, he's just, that's haunting him. But one of the first things that happens early in the book is that um, his father is acting like he's taking a sort of theological question seriously, but then he makes it sound so stupid and scoffs at it. Like he's like, I'm probably going to, what do you say? I'm probably going to be hung up by some, some chains on hooks in yes, hell because yes. who deserves it more than me? But then what do they have blacksmiths in hell? Where are they going to get the hooks from? Like he just starts making it sound stupid by asking these kind of daft, like overly literal questions. And I think Ivan has a very similar impulse. He just does it in a way that sounds a lot more well thought through. So people take it more seriously um, than they take. But the devil does the same thing. Like the devil even is doing that same thing where he'll um, take something spiritual, but then put it in this ludicrous way where he's like, well, you know, I was dressed in evening wear and then I was flying through the universe to get to a party and you wouldn't believe how cold you can get up there in space when you're only wearing evening dress. I didn't have on a coat. It's like the combination of just kind of physical details and spiritual things makes us laugh. And then I think Ivan's instinct is like, let me just scoff at everything supernatural the way he scoffs at the devil when the devil's in his room. Like, let me scoff and scorn everything supernatural and then I won't have to take it seriously and then it won't affect me. Whereas I kept thinking, would you just rebuke the devil so he'll flee from you? Like, will you just be like strongly rebuking of this devil? And instead of doing that, Ivan just keeps scoffing at him, but not truly rebuking him. Just being like, I don't take you seriously. Come on, please. What really gets the devil to flee is when Alyosha shows up. Yes. And when uh, Ivan throws the glass at him, it's like he gets so overcome with his emotion that he he can't. It's like you wouldn't throw a glass at someone that you're like you're just an idiot. Yeah, you know you don't exist. So I'm gonna throw a glass at you. Yeah, and and then Martin Luther threw his inkstand at the devil like yes. what one time, and so we know Martin Luther believed in the devil. Like didn't have any. It seems like he didn't right. have any doubts that the devil existed. So. So, you know, just so many good points. But one one of the things, like, as we're getting ready to go into the Grand Inquisitor, I think one of the things about Ivan is that I think he he scoffs because he's jealous. And I was thinking about, like, why would you even write that article? Why would you, like, I've mentioned this about aliens on another episode. Like, I'm not going to write a novel about aliens existing. Like I, I don't believe they do. I'm not. 
I mean, I, I will entertain, like, if someone wants to show me a, an alien movie or, or make me read an alien novel, like, I'll do it just out of kindness. But it's like, I know they don't, and therefore, I don't ha- I'm not going to, like, write something that, that's like, oh, but what if they did? And, and I think that that's... That's the thing is, like, the people that write things about aliens existing either believe they do or want to believe that they do. And I know Tom DeLonge is going to, you know, come at me with, you know, 20 pages of, of you know, NASA research or whatever. But, um, but just, like, it would never occur to me to do the equivalent of what the Grand Inquisitor is or mm-hmm. what... Um, you know his article about the ecclesiastical courts or, yeah. or anything like that. Like I, he takes it seriously enough to give it exactly. so much attention. Whereas, I mean, granted, I guess if you saw everyone around you believing in aliens, if that just became a groundswell of like culture where you were like everyone's believing in aliens, and you'd be like, maybe you'd want to address it and yes. like debunk it. And I think that's what Ivan is kind of telling himself he's doing, yeah. but. It's not true. If he's realistic with himself and he looks around at everyone he knows, hardly Alicia is like the only devout person he right, knows. Right. It's not like everyone around him is just eaten up with like fervor yeah. for religion. So that's that's not what it is because it's like the end of the affair by Graham Greene, which is the book that I teach. Yes. There is a character who's a he goes out in the village green in this neighborhood of London and proselytizes atheism like every day and tries to get people to come talk to him further so he can debunk Christianity. And this is taking place in the post-war, like uh, post-World War II years. And this character, Sarah, grew up her whole life as an atheist and like never gave one thought to it one way or the other, really. But um, in a crisis moment, she prayed to God for a miracle and the miracle happened. And now she's like, oh my gosh, I have to believe in God now. Like, it's, just, it's like really throwing her for a loop, and she kind of doesn't, she just doesn't want to believe in God. So she sees him preaching atheism, and she's like, I'm going to go talk to him and try to get him to convince me because I don't want to believe in God. But then the more fervently he is preaching to her against atheism, the more she keeps thinking, you know, if he doesn't believe this is true, why is he so passionate about it? Why does he devote his life to it? Like, I wouldn't devote my life to trying to make everybody think that Hansel and Gretel didn't really exist or whatever. Like, I'm just like, they don't exist. And she said, and it's not like everybody walking down the street around here in like 1950 in London is fervently believing in Jesus. And he's like, I've got to change your hearts. Like none of, basically everybody walks by and listens to him saying like, God doesn't exist. And they're like, okay. And they, keep walking. They don't care one way or the other. He believes. Like that's that's the conclusion she comes yes, to. She's like, yes. he believes, but he's mad at God. <laughs> and, and it turns out that is the case. And, you know, you're bringing up this idea of like, Ivan, you know, like, just like they say, Milton was at the devil's party without knowing it um, for Paradise Lost being basically about Satan. Um, but, I mean, you know. Like the temptation, you know, the temptation in the garden is Satan. Like he does have oh, the paradise lost, yeah, not he, paradise. Yeah, <laughs> he does. He does have an effect on the world. Let's admit it. But, um, but 
I think that Ivan is of God's party without knowing it. And I think by the end of the novel, he, he actually is getting to this point of, like the devil says at the end of the, the chapter about, you know, where he appears, he says something about like the people, um, I'm just going to find it. It's like um, he's talking about the, um, like that idea of going after the one that's, that's important. And Ivan says, I'm sorry, this is, this is Satan. He says, because secretly you want that very much, you will dine on locusts, you will drag yourself to the desert or seek salvation. And he says, so you scoundrel, you're troubling yourself over the salvation of my soul? And Satan says, one needs to do a good deed sometimes at least, but I see you're angry with me, really angry. He says, buffoon. And have you ever tempted them, the ones who eat locusts and pray for 17 years in the barren desert and get overgrown with moss? And then Satan says, my dear, I've done nothing else. One forgets the whole world and all the, all worlds and clings to such a one because a diamond like that is just too precious. One such soul is sometimes worth a whole constellation. We have our own arithmetic. It's a precious victory. Mm. And, I, and I wrote out in my pen, Ivan, Russian for John. And I was thinking Ivan becomes a John the Baptist. And I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but um, that's the role he will play is like the person that seems like a lunatic who, who is a fool for God. Like he, he's, he's someone who is literally like out of his mind trying to convince people that God is real, that God, you know, that he saw the devil. I mean, if you talk to someone today and they were like, yeah, the devil came to me last night. Mm-hmm. Unless you're a very sincere Christian, you'd probably be like, yeah. this person's lying. And even then, you have to trust the person massively and kind of verify. Because, like, Alyosha believes in the devil, but when he shows up to Ivan's house and Ivan's like, the devil was here, he's like, no, you're losing your, like, you're sick. I got to go get the doctor. And he is sick. I mean, that's what, what you said made me think of the Grand Inquisitor, partly because the Grand Inquisitor also goes through a period of like locusts in the desert and fasting and stuff. And then he comes to not unbelief, but just um, a lack of trust in God and an insistence on doing it his own way. Like I would say the Grand Inquisitor comes out at the end of that period of fasting in the desert and all of that with a satanic impulse to say, I believe in God, but I'm going to oppose him. And that's the, the battle that that the devil was fighting like he he wants to take these great influential people like those kind of supermen that yes, he talks yes. about he's like those souls those people who can influence other people and have an impact i need them to if not come to unbelief come to opposition to god like either one works but the supermen an average person, maybe you just leave them in unbelief, but the, the supermen types, you know, the real bold dynamic types, you want them to come to opposition to God if possible. But it makes me think of Job, too, because obviously the devil mentions Job and says how many souls have had to be ruined and how many honorable reputations destroyed for the sake of that one righteous man, Job, over whom they made such a fool of me in the old days. But thinking, okay, well, a lot of people suffered because of the punishment happening to Job. Like, there's a lot of collateral damage, right. you know, all his kids and, you know, just probably everyone who 
was connected to him on his property, like everyone was really suffering because of Job all around him. And there is kind of a scandal that God has favorites, that God allows Satan to sift people like wheat, you know, like Peter gets sifted, like things like that. I think that that's a scandal for someone like Ivan who's like, I feel enough faith in God that I need to grapple with these ideas and not just ignore them, but I can't reconcile myself to the things that in my reason don't seem fair. Yes. Like, why? okay, well, why does God choose one person and not another? Like, why does one person get to enter the kingdom of heaven and another person never does? Or why does someone like Job have to get tested? Or And there's collateral damage. Like, there other people get hurt, too. Why, is God fair? Is God fair? Is God fair? Like, Satan wants our ego and our, our pride and our own reason to continually press those questions. And I think for an, a really intelligent person, they're not going to dismiss out of hand the possibility that there could be a creator of the universe. They're going to grapple with it and grapple with it. And Satan's like, yeah, keep grappling and don't ever come to a place of faith. Mm. Because I think it's true that a truly thoughtful person is going to ask those questions. You have to be pretty, like, I think Dimitri in prison says something like, what kind of blockhead never thinks about questions like that? Like, he's like agonizing over whether God exists as well when he's in prison. And he's like, well, you have to be like half dead to not ever think about that. Yeah. You know, it makes, <clears throat> it makes me think a lot of things, um, but just... That idea of, you know, there's a God-shaped hole in our hearts. Like, we are designed by a creator who doesn't give us everything that we need to know about him. But he gives us everything we need, material-wise, in the most basic sense. Because as long as there's someone offering it, it's, it's available to you. And so for some people... That need is, you know, very short, like children dying, you know, and, and some people it's like, you know, my grandmother's 91 and, um, you know, it, it's just for us to think, you know, what is fair or well, what we're doing there is choosing to be God and saying, God, I'm going to determine what's fair for you. And, and. You know, I, I just think more and more about that that concept of letting God be God so that I don't have to worry about what is fair. Like, I can delight in seeing his justice come to earth, but trust that his justice in totem will apply to not only now, 2022, but to all of history, that everything that's ever happened in history will be made right that everything will be shown for its true justice in eternity. And I think that that goes to a point that you brought up earlier about the unreason, the idea of things that are not knowable. And I think that the more intellectual you are, the more you want to know how God thinks. And um, I think that it is possible to, to know God well through through scripture. I I mean I I feel like I know God very well. 
because he he has revealed so much about himself yeah. in the in the Father, in the Son, and the Holy Spirit in his word, which is, you know, Christ is the incarnate word. And yet there is so much that I will never know this side of heaven. And if I let that discourage me, then I can get into that place of anger and hatred and say like, how dare you God? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, like you're bringing up the, the idea of like the ones that God allows Satan to really test and try, you know, he, he doesn't allow that for every person. And, and why would God allow Job to be the test case? And I think it's because he knows Job's faith and he says, I'm going to prove to you that he will not turn away from me no matter what you do. And Satan finally loses and he's like, I give up. Mm-hmm. And, and then when Job says, why did this happen to me? God says, you don't get to know that. It's like Peter. It's like Peter loved Jesus with passion, which is one of the most powerful things in the whole universe, right? Just loving Jesus. So Satan sifts him like wheat. I mean, Satan, I mean, you sift wheat. It was like you just beat it as hard as you possibly could, (laughs) you know, Um Satan gets to really like beat up on Peter and kind of win for a minute right. even. And it's because Peter, Peter's like a superman of love and emotion. I feel like I agree. Like, you know what I mean? Like kind of a Dimitri and has so much potential. Well, Satan's going to target. And that's essentially what the devil is saying in this section. Satan's going to target people who have so much potential for like kingdom work, like Job or like Peter. Um, and Satan's given free reign to do that by God. Like Satan's like the ruler of the world. He gets to do things like that and target people who have a passion for God. Yeah. That might not seem fair, but it is fair because God is the arbiter of fair. Like right. I just read this wonderful book called Peace Like a River. Um, 10 out of 10 recommend. By Leif Inger. Yeah, for my book club. And um, toward the end of the book, I mean, this is a family who's been through a job like amount of suffering and kept their faith by the end. And um, it says fair is whatever God wants to do. That's what the the narrator realizes. Fair is, he's been struggling with, is it fair, is it fair, is it fair? He says fair is whatever God wants to do. And the, the devil is basically saying at one point that he wants to convince people that they get to be the ones who decide what's fair and what's right. That's what being God is. So when people start thinking that way, they're thinking that they're God. Yeah. And, you know, you think about the first commandment is you should have no other gods before me. And, and, you know, you can also translate that no other God besides me. Um, And, and, you know, one of the things that, that uh, Ivan does with the Grand Inquisitor is he, he tries to determine what God would do. And, and I, you know, I think about the what would Jesus do bracelets. And, and those were really first popularized, to my knowledge, like when we were in high school. Um, they're still around now. And, of course, now people have what would Jesus do bracelet. And then they also have H-Y, H-W, whatever. He would love first, H-W-L-F. And, 
and I do think he would love first, but but do you know what God's love is? Might be tough love. Might be tough love. And I think that um I think that you know, this idea of what would Jesus do in twenty twenty two, well if he came to earth in twenty twenty two, it'd be game over. It'd, it'd be done. It'd be revelation. But I think what did Jesus do it is a great question to ask because that can illustrate what should you do in that moment. And what is Jesus doing is, is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, you know, Ivan is almost like God doesn't exist, but in my story, <laughs> God is... Um, very similar to the, the Jesus of the Bible. And, and you know, I, I'm going to, you know, plagiarize all these things that he does and, 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 like, make it seem like it's a character in a novel rather than the incarnate, the incarnate God, like God come to earth, the, the, you know, the Alpha and the Omega. I mean, you know, he reduces him to a character in not even a poem, but a poem he's planning to write. And I think that that's, that's indicative of a lot of people have grand, grand ambitions, but it's like, is Ivan ever going to write this down? No. He says, oh, oh, no, I haven't even written two lines of it. <laughs> he says, I just, I just have it in my mind. And then he goes on to tell it. And, and you know, we've, we've mentioned a few of the things uh, in the episodes before, but you know, like what he was saying, it, it's coming from a it's a historical poem. So it's 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 not really a poem. It's it's just a short story. But <laughs> it would be a poem if you wrote it. I yes. Yeah. Um, but it's it's set in 1500s uh, Spain when the Inquisition is happening. Although I thought the Inquisition was earlier than that. But anyways, um, I guess it's still happening in the 1500s in Spain. And well, so well, the Inquisition like takes off after the. Um, Protestant Reformation, oh, like there's okay. like this. Okay. Well, you know, because we need to fight heresy now in a whole new yes, form. But then, of yes. course, that's going <clears> to <throat> still be applied to like fighting heresy among Jews, or right, you know, right. because there was a Jewish presence in Spain, and there was even like a Muslim presence in Spain. So Spain's like a hotbed of potential heresy and Inquisition. And it's interesting that he chooses that because Spain is a very different place than Russia. Um, I would say that Spain is like the warm weather, like it's probably pretty close uh, equatorial, you know, whatever, uh, latitudinally um, to Georgia, uh, and we live in Georgia, and it's hot here all the time. Like it gets so hot here in the summers that you can't go outside. That's, you breathe in the air and it's, it's just awful. And so the people that have to work outside or like in, in un, uh, non-air conditioned places, um, it's just, it's very hard to live here. And, and, you know, a lot of people in the North of America will look at the South and be like, Oh, they're so ignorant. Oh, they're so dumb. Why, you know, why, why don't they just get with the program or whatever? And it's like, why don't you live here for one year? And just see how hard it is to think when it's 110 degrees outside. Imagine before air conditioning. Oh, I, I can't believe people settled here and stayed here before air conditioning. But it is what it is. Um, 
but just that that Russia is known for being a cold place, you know, where it snows a lot and it's it's a very like um, harsh conditions place. And Spain seems to have like the polar opposite harsh conditions, and yet it has this like you're either with us or against us. It doesn't have this like tendency toward uh, laissez faire like France. Yeah, they have authoritarian rule there, like. As a rule, maybe they have a broad Spanish nature, like Russian has a broad Russian nature, or they go to extremes, you yeah. know, maybe. That's an interesting theory I'd like to explore more. <laughs> and um, and I do think that Dostoevsky picked something particular for Ivan to have based this whole story around that, A, would be, like, pretty historically, like, obvious to people. Like, every, everyone would have heard of the Spanish Inquisition. Um, and yet, it's a big mystery. It's not something that happened in their century. It's not something... It's not, like, referring to, like, Napoleon or something like that that would be, like, more more kind of cultural knowledge. Um, it's going to feel a little mythic. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't feel fully tangible, although they know it happened. And so... Here is this this inquisitor, um, and it says the old man himself points out to him that he has no right to add anything to what's already been said once. That if you like that, if you like, is the most basic feature of Roman Catholicism, in my opinion, at least. Everything they say has been handed over by you to the Pope. Therefore, everything now belongs to the Pope, and you may as well now not come at all now, or at least don't interfere with us for the time being. And so that idea of like. Like the the Grand Inquisitor is trying to tell Jesus in this imaginary scene, like you you can't do anything without our permission because you handed us the keys. Mm-hmm. It's our house now. Like the Pope rules you basically. And I actually think that gets at um, Ivan's big opposition to God, which is that he just lets people suffer. He just lets people do evil things and doesn't intervene. So, basically, the Grand Inquisitor is saying, hey, you said you weren't going to intervene anymore, and you clearly don't intervene, so get out of here. We're in charge now. We'll intervene. We'll handle it all. You know, like, we don't need you anymore. We don't want you anymore. And there's some, there's, like, some truth to that. Like, basically, everything the devil does, he's, like, taking a core of truth and then twisting it and, like, making it kind of off. Um, it is true that God lets things happen, lets people's free will play out, even when people's free will is to be horrible, right? Like, we all see that living on the earth, yes. and it can be very dispiriting. Like, you, you hear about someone torturing someone, doing something evil, and you're like... I, I don't know. I can't bear it. Like sometimes it just feels like too much to stand. You know, like like poor old Kalganov was feeling after Dmitri got arrested. He's just like, I don't even know if I want to live anymore. I just can't stand it. Like, why is it like this? Why is life like this? I think Ivan feels that way too, and he wants to do what the Grand Inquisitor is doing, which is be like, okay, Jesus, clearly you left us, went back up to heaven. You're not intervening anymore. We'll take over from now, and we'll make life easier for people. We'll give them bread. We'll tell them what to do in very simple terms. Bada-bing, bada-boom. It's a similar impulse to what socialism 
wants to do, right? Like, um, we will, and, and it's also, so the Grand Inquisitor says a few of us will take on the burden of thinking about what to do. And then the rest of you can just be our lackeys. And that's going to be the best way to run the earth. And that's the same impulse that socialism, that's what plays out in Russia. Yeah. When Russia becomes a Soviet Union is like a few of us will make the decisions for the rest of you. You follow us like lackeys and it will be what's good for you. Get in line, stripping them of their full human dignity to have freedom and make choices and saying, Hey, we know what's best for you because we're the supermen in this Mm. situation. We're the party leaders. We're the church leaders or whatever the case may be. And saying there's not a higher power than us. We are the arbiters of what's fair. Yeah, just the attitude that the Grand Inquisitor has is contrary to what the church is called to do, which is to not play favorites, is to say everyone in the church is to be seen as a brother, which, of course, makes me think about the brothers Karamazov. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that's what's so troubling about the Grand Inquisitor is that he he, he hates the idea of brotherhood. He thinks that there's some sort of like um, caste system to spirituality, whereby the ten th- or hundred thousand that will take the, take on the suffering of of making all the decisions for the benefit of the millions. You know, he thinks like basically Jesus <laughs> Jesus erred when he um, when he didn't take the the stone turned to bread. Like, he's like, well, if you had done that, then everyone have have food to eat every day and there would be no hunger and there'd be no poverty. Yeah, if Jesus had just taken over power of the world when Satan offered it to him, wouldn't we all be happier? Shouldn't he have just done that? Yeah. Like, who cares about spiritual happiness in some kind of abstract sense if we could just have a just better life on earth? That's what matters. It's just a mix-up of whether life on earth is what's most important or eternal life is what's most important. Eternal life is a whole lot longer than life on earth, but it's hard to see that when you're living here on earth. And, you know, that that ping-pongs me back to the Satan and Ivan conversation where Satan tells this story about the man that walks a quadrillion kilometers Um to, as his penance, basically, like like to to get access into heaven, he has to do that faithfully and not give up. And it says he waits a thousand years because he's like, this won't help. Yeah, and I didn't want this in life, and I don't want it now. Like the stubbornness, yeah. yeah. And then when he finally does it, he gets into the gates of heaven, and it says he looks at his watch, and Satan's like, I don't know why the watch would still work after <laughs> after all after that a time. billion years. Yeah. I think it was. And and it's like basically saying, he says, the man is spends two seconds in heaven, and he says, I would have walked a quadrillion times a quadrillion, or a quadrillion times a quadrillion to the quadrillionth power, mm-hmm. and that is vastly more math than my mind can comprehend, and at the same time, I understand that that trade-off because I have 
faith in Christ to know whatever I endure on earth is worth it to get even two seconds of, of the fullness of, of God in heaven. And that's irrational and true at the same time, which is part of Dostoevsky's point. You know, I'm really glad you brought that up. I wanted to talk about that a little bit more too, that um, quadrillion quadrillions for two seconds of joy. Um, I I was so moved by the way this Joseph Frank's biography talks about that section. Um, I just wanted to read a little bit of it. It says, When asked for proof of his accusation against Smirdikov, Ivan replies that he has no witnesses except possibly the devil, and then rambles on as if confiding a secret in a stream of consciousness monologue composed of fragments taken from earlier scenes. Quote, I told him I don't want to keep quiet, and he talks about the geological cataclysm. Idiocy, come, release the monster. He's been singing a hymn. That's because his heart is light. It's like a drunken man in the street howling, Vanka went to Petersburg, and I would give a quadrillion quadrillions for two seconds of joy. End quote. And then Joseph Franks just writes, the poignancy of these last words requires no comment. That I think Ivan really would give a quadrillion quadrillions for two seconds of joy. I don't think he's had two seconds of joy in his whole life yet. Because he won't pride pride is the enemy of joy. And humility is a friend of joy. And mm-hmm. Ivan has had a lot of pride and it took pride. I mean, it took humility for that that man in this anecdote that Ivan meant to be ridiculous, the man in the anecdote to get up after a thousand years and say, fine, I'll walk. That took humility because yes. he, he thought, well, I'll sit here forever. I return my ticket. That, yes. That's what that man thought, just like Ivan. Mm. And I think Ivan thought that story would sound made up and stupid and he he wrote it or thought of it in a scoffing way, but it's it's his deep longing. Yeah. In reality, like I wish that I could just see that it's all true and it's all worth it, and in the end, it's all reconciled. Is it possible that God could somehow reconcile all this suffering and it would all be worth it? Is it is it possible? The the joy that comes from just giving over your pride and just worshiping and forgetting yourself. That's what that man feels in those two seconds. The, you know, he only has to be in, in eternity with God for two seconds before he understands. And Ivan is just like, in my reason, I cannot accommodate that it could all be worth it one day and be reconciled. Yes. Um, <clears throat> this is skipping ahead again, but I'm going to do it because I just thought I would. Um, this is in the, the and now I've got to find it, but um, basically this is in, in the, the onion section, uh, which we will get to yeah. eventually. Um, it says something, okay, okay, it says... Um, I know I marked it. Okay, it says, Everything had just come together for them both in such a way that their souls were shaken, which does not happen very often in life. 
and I've had a few like soul shaking moments. Um, I mean, I've had a lot probably, but just those moments, like I, I would compare them to like time standing still. Um, and it just feels like you are completely spiritually naked and so is someone else and, and that you're not ashamed because you are in the presence of Christ. And maybe it's because you're the one that has the Holy Spirit and you, you've brought them to that point of, of confession and repentance like Alyosha does to, to uh, Grishinka. And maybe it's because they've brought out of you you know, the, that same thing. Or maybe they've brought out of you the true faith that you have, even though you were there to, like, not not wanting to show the true faith. Like, Alyosha is there to basically, like, sin his way through his grief. And um, just, I think that that connects so much to Ivan, is that Ivan is sinning his way through his grief because he is just so hurt. And it's like, you know, his mom died when he was very young, like he was like seven. And, and, and so he was old enough to know her well, to remember her well. And then not only does she die, but his father wants nothing to do with him. And his father sends him off. It's not even that, like, 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 uh, Dimitri at least gets to like grow up at the house some at, at, um, Grigory and Marfa Ignatievna's. But Ivan basically just gets shipped off to a boarding school and, and like, he, you know, he's basically seen as just, like, you know, he's no one's problem now, you know? Must have been hard on him. I could just imagine it being hard on him that Alexei wins people over so easily. Like, if you had, if you were both siblings who were reliant on the kindness of strangers, so to speak, like, reliant on the kindness of distant relatives and just people who would take you in and pay for you... Alexi just makes himself loved without meaning to everywhere he goes because he's just winning and gentle. Ivan just doesn't seem like a kid like that. Ivan's a little Jane Eyre kid who everybody everywhere he goes, people are like, why aren't you warm and spontaneous and easy to love like all the other kids? Why aren't you just like a romping little kid who can just push his way into a room and, and, you know, there are a lot of different ways you can be as a little kid that can be easy to engage with, but there are some little kids who just seem a little different and harder to engage with. And I haven't surely was one of those little kids. Yeah. And then his brother's so lovable and everybody just automatically wants him around. And they're like, Hey, live with us forever. You make our ha home life happier by being in the house, Alyosha. And then Ivan, Okay, Ivan, let's go find you a, a fine tutor because you're obviously a very intelligent child, but don't, you don't have to live here per se. Yeah. It, it, is, it is so easy as parents to see the gifting of a child and say, that is what your worth is because that's what is special about you. Mm -hmm. And I think plenty of parents do that. But, you know, my hope with Josephine, and if we ever have any more children, is I want her to just know no matter what she does, no matter who she becomes, no matter how much of her talent she redeems, like, because God, God invests talent in her, mm -hmm. no matter how much of that she actually uses, we love her. 
we are never going to not love her. And it's, it's because God gave her to us. And, you know, we certainly love other people's kids too. It's not like <laughs> she's the only one we love. But we're going to love her in a special way because she is our child. And I think that Ivan missed that. Like, he didn't get unconditional love from his father Maybe or his mother. Maybe he got it from his mother, but but because she died, he felt like it was counterfeit. Like it was it wasn't real. Because why would God's unconditional love come to a person and then they die and then I can't access it anymore? That's not fair. You might right. be mad at God. I mean, that makes sense that you might feel that way. It makes sense. That's the thing. On a deeper level, it's not true, I guess, but it makes sense. Yeah. Like it reminds me of when so. Alyosha is getting frustrated with God and he, when Zosima has a stench of corruption and he echoes Ivan's, I return my ticket statements. Like he says, Alyosha says um, to Rakitin, I'm not rebelling against my God. I simply don't accept his world. That's the same thing Ivan said. Um, and he doesn't accept his world because he feels that it's not fair that Father Zosima is getting maligned by people and he knows Zosima was wonderful so why would you just not allow Zosima to get honored after he dies? Like, why are you making this happen to him so that people are going to have bad things to say about him? It just doesn't seem fair. You know, he's frustrated with God. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's just a human reaction. In our grief, when we lose someone that we love, we're just, we have that immediate reaction to say, what was was right and correct and God ordained and designed, and now this person not being there, this is not right, and that's that's correct. Like we're correct in having that reaction. Satan it, is the author of death. Yes, yeah. and and so we we are right to say this is wrong, in the sense that. It was the way it was before by design, and that because someone dies, something is flawed in the design. And I think the thing about it is, is that the design was perfect, but it was it it was um, it was tainted by Satan's temptation of, of Adam and Eve. And so, it will never be perfect design while someone's alive or when they die. But God can use all of that. Because his design all along was knowing the design would be corrupted. His, his true design was bringing himself in the person of Christ to earth. And so we think, oh, well, Garden of Eden was God's um, you know, original design, and then it, then it was thrown off. But it's like, well, I think God created everything perfectly to give us the expectation of perfection, like to, to, to think that God can create perfectly. And the reality is God did create perfectly in heaven and it's, it's still perfect to this yeah. day. It'll be perfect for eternity, but there's free, there's freedom and restoration of all that's been lost and broken yes. instead of just constant existence of yes. perfection. And that's God's sovereign, perfect will. And, and so Ivan has lost his mom at a tender age 
has grown up basically being overinflated into one aspect of his identity to the yes. point where, like, he's an intellectual Superman, but he's an emotional... Um, Infant or something? Yeah, he, he's yeah. an emotional, like, always neat damsel in distress. Like, I don't even know. I can't even think of, like, what would be the... Yeah. He's, a, he's, an, emotional, he's yeah. an emotional Lois Lane. <laughs> um, but, you know, Lois Lane has some agency. Let's, let's be real, you know. But, um, but the thing about it is he... He has been puffed up by people who don't understand as perfectly as God does. And Alyosha, I think, was not puffed up to be one way. I think he he retained his mother's faith and grew into his own faith. And as such, he's an independent person. Um, in, in the beginning stages of this novel, I'd say his only dependency is on Zosima, but it's not on his family at all. Whereas Ivan and Dimitri are equally dependent on their father to give them identity. And Dimitri is feeling like, you know, he's he, he burns hot. So he's going to like, you know, come in and kick the daylights out of his father and be like, you'd better not steal my girl. And Ivan is just going to sit there and be like, let the snakes, let the vipers devour mm-hmm. each other. And, and, just because he burns coal doesn't mean he he can't. I mean, when you think about, like, liquid nitrogen, it's like, you know, you spray liquid nitrogen on something, then you touch it, and it just shatters immediately. I think it's better to be hot or cold in general, though. Like I agree. I agree. Like, you know, okay, be either hot or cold, or don't be lukewarm, or I'll spit you out of my mouth, right? Like, yeah. God yeah. desires you to be fiery in your desire for him. Yeah. And but if you're really cold in your hatred for him, you're closer to coming to him because you're so grappling with it. Like yeah. Ivan, the yeah. worst place you can be is some sort of lukewarm, like, oh, you know, I'll give some respect to God, maybe, but you know, I don't really care. And you know, I'm, yeah. like, I don't think about this that much, I don't take it that seriously, I'm not going to act on it, I don't really care that much. Like, that's a bad place to be. Like at the beginning, um, Madame Kuklikov tells about all of her <laughs> ups and downs to Zosima. And Zosima yes. says, well, it's a good sign that you're at least thinking about this. You're, you're grappling with it. You're trying to be somewhat honest and self-aware. That's a good sign. You may actually even do something for someone one day. <laughs> like you may actually get around to doing something good for someone one day. Just keep grappling with it. Don't stop. Like being being hot or cold against God is better than just being kind of blah, kind of lukewarm. And but active love is so vital that and that's the advice he's giving Madame Kolikov. Like transitioning from what I was just reading, where Alyosha's having a little crisis of faith, where he's like starting to talk like Ivan. You know, active love is what gets him out of that crisis of faith. That gets us into an onion. Like even the smallest act of active love, giving someone an onion can get you out of a crisis of doubt because so Dostoevsky um, I read that he was very moved by first John the book first John when he was in Siberia um, and, and affected his thinking a lot and a lot of first John like I'm looking at first John four right now and yeah. um, has to do with active love and how right. you see God through active love like I'll just read a little selection of it um, like for example, Whoever lives in love lives in God, 
and God in him. So that's putting it in the same order that Zosima is putting it in, I would say, which is go show active love, like live in love, and then you'll live in God and God will live in you. And then in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There's a very complex interplay in this book of First John between abide in Christ and he will abide in you. And this going back to the Gospel of John, but live in love and God's love will live in you. So we take a step and God takes a step. We have a role and God has a role. I yes. think that that active interplay of we show active love, God's active love is in us. You know, we take a step of active faith. God, we're reaffirmed in our faith in God. Like, that we have a role to play, and it's not passivity. I do think there are, of course, there are certainly scriptures that emphasize that God has to give us the power for anything that happens and that God takes the initiating role and drawing us to salvation, all those things. But there are also scriptures that suggest that we have a very important role to play. We need to go do something active and make a move in love. And Dostoevsky, those scriptures were very important to him, like these first John scriptures. You know, this is starting to get big picture. Um, you reading that made me think, you know, is is this the Orthodox Church is very grounded in the in the writings of John. The Catholic Church is very grounded in the writings and the, just like the person of Peter. And the and the the uh, Protestant Church is very 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 grounded in the writings of Paul. Oh, that's very interesting and feels right like on an intuitive level. And now, now get ready for this. Peter, Dimitri, Paul, Ivan, John, Alyosha. Wow, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because it, okay, can I just say, that's favoritism, right? Like, John might have felt like he was Jesus' favorite. <laughs> and that doesn't seem fair, but if that was true, then it was fair because Jesus doesn't do anything unfair and he can have a favorite. And to me, it seems like it could be perceived as unfair that Alyosha was born the way he was born, if that makes sense. Like, why is Alyosha born with a natural bent toward loving God and people? That that doesn't seem fair. Like, yeah. can you blame Dimitri that he's such a hothead? Can you blame Dimitri? I mean, can you blame Ivan that he's such a cold rationalist? Can you blame... Theodore, that he's such a sensualist. They were born that way. That's the argument that a Bernard is making, which is to say that's his genetics and his environment combining to make him who he is, and you can't blame him for it, so there is no crime. The mystery at the heart of this work is, yeah, our reason can't make sense of how it's fair that Alyosha's born loving God yeah. And Ivan isn't born loving God, and yet they're both are responsible, and there is crime, and there yeah. is sin. How does that make sense? Well, it makes sense because the Scripture, in this incredibly complex way, 
tells you that that is the case. And that's what the Grand Inquisitor wants to reject. Like the Grand Inquisitor says, Jesus asks too much of people. It's too complicated. He granted people too much respect to think they could handle all that complexity. Let's strip this down to essentials and we'll take over. They don't need to make weighty spiritual decisions for themselves. They can't handle it. Jesus said they can and they will handle it. You know, you bring up a great point about the Grand Inquisitor's view of the people, which is, I wrote it, wrote it in my margin, grown-ups and children. And I, I think that, that you know, t- to my point about, like, um, the Grand Inquisitor s- sees ranking, like, he, see, he sees himself among the high rankings. And I think it's because he sees himself, among, he sees himself as a grown-up around children. And Ivan kind of thinks of himself the same way. Um, and, and I was thinking about this idea of Satan is the father of lies. And Satan is obviously a character in this novel. And who's the father in this novel? Well, we have two fathers, but we have Fyodor Pavlovich and we have Zosima. But it's like th- there is a, 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 a dichotomy of uh, the father of all lies versus the father of truth. You know, we have Fyodor Pavlovich who is told, like, don't stop lying to yourself. Like, he's basically told, all you do is lie to yourself. And so you tell yourself, like, you you don't, you will, you will um, you'll duck the scythe of the, of the angel of death. And, and I think that that concept is, is, it, it's like here's a father writing a novel about a character who's named after his son that passed away. It's, it's so profound. And then we have this idea of the son, you know, God, God the son, Christ, being on earth and trusting God the father's plan, which is crucifixion. And just, it, it's it's overwhelming to think about this idea of what makes people a family. Is it the parentage or is it the siblings? Is it the children that, that, that identify the parents or is it the parents that identify the children? And, and obviously, I think it's both. But like Josephine is a deal, but she's also a Raoul and a Sasser and a Pangle, and, you know, I can't do the, the uh, family tree too much farther out from that, but, um, but just that idea of, like, she's the culmination of many families, and yet she is going to be the family going forward, and she, you know, Lord willing, will get married, and whatever husband she has will, will hopefully share his last name with her, and, and, and she won't She'll still be a deal, but she'll be whatever that is. And, and, and just the, the way that lineage works, you know, those who are faithful to God, that faithfulness will bear fruit for a thousand generations. And so here's Alyosha's mother bearing him fruit in, like, like you said, he's born with such a, a warm temperament. 
and in such an open heart. And he doesn't ever close that heart. I think Ivan could have just as easily, I mean, who knows if Ivan was the same as Alyosha, but something happened. And, and, you know, something could have happened while his mom was still alive. Like he could have, you know, been abused. He could have, something bad could have happened to him. He could have, like, had a near-death experience. He, He could have had many things to kind of, shake his faith or shake his his identity but i think what happened was the adults in his life um kept reinforcing his identity to be that intellectual superman and so he thought well how do i become an intellectual superman he looked around at who the intellectual supermen were and it wasn't the monks <laughs> you know it was it was these intellectuals and and they were saying, oh, well, we, we know the truth. We've had this revelation that people were wrong all along, and we're right. Mm-hmm. And, and that um, human beings are the ones who are going to have to save the world and transform humanity because clearly God hasn't done it and doesn't exist. Like That yeah. was a conclusion intellectual life had come to. The human beings are the ones who are going to have to step in and fix everything. Yeah. And... That there was a ruthlessness that was just accepted as permissible in the service of that goal. And you saw that, you see that bear fruit in the Soviet Union. Yeah. This utter ruthlessness sweeping away the enemies of progress, so to speak, of achieving the goal of utopia. And when Dostoevsky was writing this, there was a just a wave of assassinations Mm. and assassination attempts in Russia, people trying to kill the Tsar people trying to kill top officials, young, idealistic intellectuals committing murder to purge society of what was holding it back from progress. And in a strange way, I think Ivan was thinking of his killing his own father that way. Like, the world would be better off without this man. Why is this man alive? Right. Like, if he and Dimitri both killed each other, the world would be a better place, frankly. I hate these guys. And he's thinking that way. Yeah. And what he's angry about is that he can't go on thinking that way. In fact, he wants to go confess to his small ideological role in the murder. Right. He can't, like, there's a, I'll read a small quote, but this is from the, um, Joseph Frank's biography, it says, as the devil cynically comments, all this theorizing is very charming, but if you want to swindle, why do you want a moral sanction for doing it? <laughs> like, in other words, if you want to murder someone, you don't believe in God. You've said that very forcefully. Why do you feel like you need a moral sanction for doing anything right. that you want to do? Just, just do it. Um, it says, idealistic dreams of a transformed humanity can lead not only to swindling, but also, as Ivan has now become aware, to a justification for murder. It is impossible here not to think again of Dostoevsky's actual social political position in which those whom he was willing to accept as misguided idealists were bent on murdering the Tsar father. Dostoevsky had come out in public and defended these young people who were trying to assassinate the Tsar mm. and said they're misguided idealists. Mm. They, they actually think they're doing something good. They're not just psychos. Um, he had he had sympathy for them, and you right. see him having sympathy for Ivan in this work too. Um, and I think he even has sympathy for the Smirnikov types who 
are not the ideological innovators and they're not the ones pushing the ideas. They're just the ones imbibing the ideas and then acting on them. So I guess that brings up a good question about the Grand Inquisitor. Do you think that he has sympathy for the Grand Inquisitor? Yes, in that, to me, it feels like Dostoevsky can understand how he went down that road, how tempting it could be to go down that road, to say the ends justify the means. Like, I would call him a utilitarian thinker. And so, similar to that that Jesuit who says, well, I know I'm a leader in the church, and I'm not sure God exists, but it's good for the people if they think God exists, it keeps them morally in check. It kind of keeps them order. So let's just, I'm going to keep teaching it to the people, to the masses, and I'll, I'll handle the doubts within my own heart. Like that man within himself probably felt like some sort of humanitarian. Dostoevsky found that disgusting, but he was imaginatively sympathetic enough to understand where he's coming from and yeah. say, this is just a deeply misguided person like like Paul says we're actually the worst off of all people if Christ didn't rise from the dead we're just wasting our lives in misguided self-sacrifice and self-effacement if we are doing it and Jesus never rose from the dead like it's a foolish thing to say hey you know I think I'm gonna put my faith in Christ because hey if I die and it turns out it wasn't true Eh, I didn't waste my time or anything. It gave me a little comfort. Paul is like, actual Christianity calls you to the radical self-sacrifice that is not comfortable at all. Like, don't do that if it's not true. <laughs> the only reason to do it is if it's true. Yeah. I think the Grand Inquisitor is kind of taking that line. He's like this lukewarm figure where he's saying... Well, I mean, I know that Jesus, I'm literally sitting here talking to Jesus. Like, I know that Jesus actually came to earth, died for our sins. All of that is true. But at the same time, man, wouldn't life be more comfortable if it weren't true? So I'm going to just let people be comfortable. And in his, like, foolish, misguided way, he's a humanitarian. I think there's, like, the reason Jesus kisses him instead of slapping him in the face, is because Dostoevsky has some sympathy for him. Mm. While seeing that at the same time he's doing the devil's work, and it's yeah. horribly evil. Well, that makes me think about, you know, Ivan's parallel lines thing. And, and this idea of, like, what if parallel lines did actually connect somewhere in, you know, in a place you couldn't see? And he's like, I would have to see it myself. Uh-huh. And even then, he's like, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I would believe it, even if I did. Yeah. And and his Euclidean mind that they keep saying he has a Euclidean mind yes. could not accept it. And he says that this is in the rebellion. This is right after that in the rebellion chapter. He says, "What do I care that none are to blame and that I know it? 
I need retribution, otherwise I will destroy myself. And retribution, not somewhere in some time in infinity, but here and now on earth so that I see it myself. I have believed and I want to see for myself. And if I'm dead by that time, let them resurrect me because it will be too unfair if it all takes place without me. Is it possible that I've suffered so that I, together with my evil deeds and sufferings, should be manure for someone's future harmony? And he just has this attitude of like, even if even if I see it, even if I get to see it, it still won't be enough for me. And and I think that that word retribution is really powerful. It made me think about how how um, how much of an appetite like American culture has for vengeance, not uh, vengeance uh, stories, because I think that there is just a, a a spark in the heart of most people that says. There should be vengeance. There should be retribution and and restoration, and, and something should happen when evil happens. Mm-hmm. And and of course, the Christian faith is built on Christ has that role. That vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and that it's not our place to take the vengeance out. If it's our place to enact the vengeance then we're doing it in, in a way, like if you're uh, in law enforcement, for example, mm-hmm. you're enacting the vengeance, you're not um, saying the vengeance, like like you're not claiming you're, you get to be vengeance. And of course, you know, Batman is like, I am vengeance. Um, I think that there is something about our world that says we want a, an avenger. Oh yeah, like people want immediate vengeance. That's why you get, cancel culture you know you want immediate vengeance immediate justice like i think some frankly like some people are kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth saying you know everyone should just be non-judgmental and everyone should just be accepting and tolerant and loving we must get vengeance and you know there must be justice for this like outrage that was committed like you don't it's it's an incoherent way of looking at the world and it's a very adolescent way of seeing the world because I think that that's, that's something that young people have a deep desire for justice, for, for things to be right, for things to be fair. And, and that is a good desire, but putting that in the right hands is mm-hmm. essential to life. If you don't put it in the right hands of Christ and you let Satan take care of it, then he will either put you on the top of the mountain and make you believe you're superior to others like Ivan, or he will put you on the bottom of the mountain and make you hate everyone atop of you, but like Smirjikov. And, and yet in the end you're, you're wedded in, in the evil. Like you're, you're, you're both responsible for the murder of, mm-hmm. of Fedor Pavlovich. And, 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 you know, that's, that's one of the big challenges of this novel is like, how how should we live? Like, how should we be a people? And there's so many different people in this novel, and we certainly talked about plenty of them in the last episode in the minor characters, but th- that Ivan gets such a s- significant role, like, I, I feel like Ivan, if Dimitri drives the plot of the novel, Ivan drives the, like... Um, like the ideas of the novel, yeah, the real conundrum of the novel. Like, how, how do we respond to evil? Yeah, and Ivan has both impulses to say, "It's 
evil is disgusting. My father is disgusting. He ought to be squashed like a bug. He doesn't deserve to exist anymore. And then he also has the impulse to be tenderhearted toward children who are suffering. How dare anyone, like, but then he, I want to get vengeance for that too. You know, I want to, I want to squash those perpetrators like a bug. Like, I want to see it happen. I don't, I don't necessarily want to do it with my own hands, but I want to see it yes. happen. I want yes. to be there with the popcorn front row seat. And I want to enjoy it when it happens. And, you know, it's, I was talking to someone the other day, a friend who said she works with a, a whole group of people who aren't believers, and they were talking about child molestation at work one day for some reason. And her coworkers seemed to be kind of in agreement in saying, well, you know, even those people who molest children, they it's just a twist in their brain. They can't help it. it it's wrong to do it, but they they can't help it. You can't really even blame them for it. You know, you can keep them away from kids or whatever, but you can't really blame them for it. And we were talking about how that does, it strips away their like dignity as full human adults who could make a decision not to sin. And it seems to strip some of the dignity of way from the victims of their sin to say like, well, those people really couldn't help it. And I feel like that's actually a stepping stone of relativism away from saying it's not even wrong and you really can't blame it at all. It's just a sexual decision someone's making or something like that so that we wouldn't even be protecting kids at all in our society. I mean, look at, we're not protecting kids from being murdered in the womb in our society. So it's only one step away from not protecting kids from being sexually assaulted in our society. So the whole conversation was very upsetting to think all of that through, that that's just a common way of thinking in the world. You know, like there is no crime. It's this, But it's the same thing that this book is grappling with is it that there is no crime or is it, which is like a, whatever Cre- Keaton would like to say, or is it that there are such horrible crimes that like, let's all destroy the perpetrators of crime and not trust God to do it in his own time yeah. eventually, or not trust the justice system to do it. What, what is the right response when there's genuine evil? And like, I have a, another friend who had a, a situation with someone she knew whose father had sexually abused her her whole life growing up. And then when she finally got grown up and decided to tell a few close friends what had happened, her friends were like, you've got to go re- turn him in. Like he could do this to someone else. You've got to turn him in. And she was like, well, I'm a Christian. I think I should forgive him. He told me he regretted it. And they're like, yeah, still turn them in. <laughs> you know, like there's still consequences. Like right. part of repenting is being willing to face the consequences of your actions. Yeah. Um, so just figuring out like as a Christian, as a human being, like what do I do when someone commits a grievous sin? Do I blame them? Do I not blame them? What does it look like for them to repent and for them to receive justice in the world from God? It's, it's very complex like boots on the ground is tough and I think that that's you know that's such a powerful thing to think about Ivan doesn't want to be boots on the ground he he wants to just play war games yeah love and dreams yeah is all he has and hate and dreams frankly too yeah and um you know the Grand Inquisitor is famous because it it's basically laying out this this argument that says if Jesus had just accepted the temptations of the devil, the world would be better. And maybe, 
I mean, yeah, if Jesus was reigning on earth from thereafter... The world would be better. Right, And then you eternity, you'd be separated from God because your sin, you know? And I just, I think that 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 intellectual exercise that Ivan is doing, he's really longing for for Christ to be what he wants him to be. And, And I think that that's... That's just a natural tendency of people, you know. Um, I think that everyone is guilty of wanting Christ to be different than he is. Um, and, and to the point where, like, whole churches, like, whole, whole denominations of Protestant churches are, are abandoning what Christ is in favor of what they think he should be, um, which is just a, a, a great evil and, and travesty and, and it makes me think about the Grand Inquisitor because the Grand Inquisitor is doing this very thing. He's he's determining for the people what they need, not letting Christ be the voice that determines to people what they need. And you know, that's the re- that's the responsibility of the church. It's like telling the people what Christ says. And, and I think the Grand Inquisitor is a good example of Ivan wants the church to give to basically bring peace on earth, to do what socialism is is trying to do, which is create pure equality, pure equity, no problems, uh, kumbaya, and yet, is that possible? No. It has never worked. It is never going to work. And it takes growing up to realize that. And so it's like, in a way, the Grand Inquisitor is actually not, he's a grown-up trying to lead children, but he's leading them astray because he has a, 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 an infantile understanding of what Christ did. And I wrote out, you know, th- this idea of like, woe, woe to those that lead the children astray because, I mean, that, that is so interwoven into this novel about parents and children and, and lead, you know, uh, people leading children or young people uh, rightly or wrongly is the future of the world. And it, it has repercussions in eternity down many generations. Like there are people in Russia in 2022 who are benefiting from the faith of people in Dostoevsky's day, maybe even from Fyodor Dostoevsky directly who who died 140 years ago so so it's 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 amazing to think about god's timing is not our timing and the grand inquisitor is trying to determine what god should do and you know jesus never he keeps saying like you can't speak if you speak you break your word and jesus doesn't speak but he kisses him at the end and it's it's just this like very bittersweet like man there's nothing i would want more than a kiss from jesus but it's this kiss of like 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 um turning him over to the devil and it's like you have all the words you need yes from yes. me and i'm going to do one final act of love towards you in affection yes. But yes. you have all the words you need. Now you have to go make a difficult decision. Mm. And Alyosha does the same thing to Ivan right after. Alyosha could argue with Ivan. 
he could quote scripture to Ivan. Yeah. He could do a lot of things. He, I think Elishan knows that Ivan knows. He knows what the scripture says because he obviously has read enough of, I, I would guess he's, he likes to have intellectual honesty if he can. And he's read the gospels, right? Like right. that's how he knows about the temptation of Christ, but it's not a, a lack of knowing the information right. in the scriptures that's keeping Ivan from faith. So Alyosha doesn't give him more words. He just gives him an act of love, yeah. leaves him with the knowledge that, you know, I'm here for you. If you change your mind, if you want to further explore this, if you need someone to talk to, if you want to turn back to me, you know, I'm here for you. I think it's the same with Jesus for the Grand Inquisitor. Like, I'm leaving you with an act of love, and I am here if you repent. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, even as Christians, as parents to Josephine, like, and any other children we might have, if you're listening and we don't know your name yet because we don't know we're having you yet. Um, it, just that idea of, like, being present and being firm. And, and you know, that is what God is. He's present. He's firm. And it's up to us to relate to him. He's already relating to us. And... The Grand Inquisitor wants to change the means by which God relates to man. And that's just not that's just not for people to decide because we could never know how to get God to relate to people better than he knows himself. And 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 you know, one of the things that's powerful in this book is is just how much grief there is throughout the book. And yet grief is one of the most profound ways that God relates to us. And, and um, you know, I feel more connected to people that that lose their, their parent because I lost my parent. It's like I, I didn't feel as connected to people who were losing their parents, even if I felt like I had a student, uh, Davis Williams, shout out, um, who lost his father when he was in junior year and... Um, I had another student, Mitchell Meek, who also lost his father junior year when I was at um, at Macaulay teaching, and I think it was junior. Anyways, whatever year that was, and um, maybe sophomore year, but um, it just this idea of like I felt so connected to them because I I had coached or taught them or both, and and. And just felt like, man, these are like my younger brothers. Like, you know, it's like I, there was just such a sense of community in that that situation. And yet I felt like they were my older brothers in grief when my dad passed away. And it was such a powerful experience. And I think that that's, you know, that's something that Ivan is learning is like I, uh, Alyosha is actually his older brother in the faith. And Dimitri, you know, is also learning that about Alyosha. But it takes a long time. And, and, you know, that's what I think is so interesting about these scenes is, like, they're both so Ivan-focused, and yet they both have Alyosha there. Like, he, he's there 
listening to the entire Grand Inquisitor, and then he's he you know shows up at the end of the Ivan's dream with the devil, and and Alyosha isn't the central character in those. Ivan is. I mean, Ivan is is the the you know the one telling the story or the one experiencing the the conversation with Satan, and yet Alyosha is there, and I think that that's that's just a testament to to Whitney's point about like being present and just like being steadfast of like if you need me I will be there and you know that's you know we we extend that to to everyone we know especially to our students and our um, you know church family and obviously our, our our biological family and and certainly most of all to Josephine because no matter how far apart from us you may feel physically mentally emotionally or spiritually we want to be close to you and and that's you know that's kind of I guess a good place to to hit. See you next time. Uh, we'll talk about Grushinka and the Onion. I thought you know I, I'm just I'm I'm doing an audible here. Um, we'll talk about the beginning, the middle, and the end in our final episode because we're going to talk about that first episode at the monastery, and then we'll talk about the Grushinka Onion story and the Cana of Galilee that comes right after that. And then we'll talk about the trial at the end, um, or the, you know, the last major thing uh, for the novel. And, and so we will uh, talk to you again on, on episode 10, the final episode of The Brothers Karamazov. Talk to you next time.